I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a look back at some of my favorite episodes from 2023 dealing with crime and justice. Our suspects are on the run right now and they're hurling more bombs at Watertown police officers in Watertown, Massachusetts. Was there a point like with the investigation where you felt like the police just, you knew they weren't believing you? Uh, We just got activated for a level one trauma. A 17 year old who was uh, shot last night. He just kicked me. In the back. I don't know who to believe. It it didn't happen. One of the biggest crimes of the past decade occurred in 2013. That's when two pressure cooker bombs detonated at the finish line to the Boston Marathon. The hunt for the perpetrators was massive, with police and the FBI trying to stay one step ahead of online detectives looking for clues on surveillance video. Tension grew between federal and local authorities on how to flush out the bombers. But a press leak changed the game and forced the Tsarnaev brothers to flee town. What followed were fatal gun battles in quiet neighborhoods, and a major metropolitan area shut down until the last suspect could be arrested. In April, I talked to director Floyd Russ about the Netflix documentary series American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon Bombing. The series was filled with interviews from key investigators from Boston Police, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. It also introduced us to some of the people personally affected by the bombing, including injured spectator Karen McKibbins. But one of the more fascinating interviews he did was with Danny Mang, a college student who was carjacked by the Sarnayev brothers right after they killed a police officer at MIT. So it's not even clear at first that, that you know, the MIT incident was connected to the marathon bombing. But then not too far away, the Sarnayev brothers carjacked Danny Mang's car with him inside. If Tamerlan Tsarnaev hadn't told Danny that they were the marathon bombers, I found myself wondering, would investigators been able to have made that connection? Because he basically gave himself up to this carjack victim. Yeah. The amateur level, you could say, of the bombers shows a lot in those 24 hours. They're not professional robbers. They don't know how to steal a gun. They're not high, they, don't, they don't know how to hijack a car. Um, so they're doing everything kind of like an amateur. They're, they're revealing their identities. They're saying what they did the day before, um, you know, and, and luckily, Danny, uh, you know, a college educated, smart, ambitious, like wholehearted human being was very strategic and processed that information, didn't panic and, you know, took the chance he could when he ran. And I want to say, you know, saved so many people in that moment because he didn't panic the second he heard that news. He could have ran. They could have shot him. He would be dead. They take the car. Cops still can't link what happened at MIT and some guy being shot on the side of the road. I mean, this is Boston. There's millions of people there. Every night there's thousands of crimes, right? Cops don't just say, oh, well, this must be connected. They can't do that. They can't jump to conclusions. There's a process to everything. You would never catch somebody that fast normally. You need somebody like Danny, you know, to so to say, step up and, and give the evidence to police because otherwise it would take too long to gather and process it. So you do show the footage of Danny's escape and 911 call. And there's this incredible moment where Danny gets into the store and is like, 
begging the store owner for help, like literally. What was your reaction the first time you saw that footage? It is an incredibly suspenseful uh, piece of real film. Yeah. To me, you know, a, a good documentary has two things. Um, it has the people who went through these events who are willing to open their mind and heart to you in the interview process. But then, of course, it, it has archival footage that is irreplaceable, you know, and that footage is stronger than any, you know, Hollywood movie or recreation could ever be like to see Danny run across that street with total holy, I'm going to cut, sorry, fucking shit. Like okay. I am going to die. I'm running for my life here, you know, and then bend down on his knees and beg the stranger to make a phone call. Like you see, you even in blurry security footage, you feel it. You really feel it, you know? And on top of that, you know, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, like this is to me the turning point of the entire manhunt is that piece of video. And then I also went by those gas stations myself when I was in Boston and people go to those gas stations every day. I mean, you guys probably know where they are. They're they're on the main, you know, um, road They're with a beautiful view across the river. But when I was standing in that corner, I was and I was just seeing, you know, literally watch like I could see Danny run across the street while I was standing on the corner and I was just like, the context of such a place and what happened at this place, you know, it's almost as powerful as what happened at the finish line, you could say, because um, what Danny did right there by running across that that road is like he saved a lot of people. I really believe that. What was it like for Danny to watch that footage again? <laughs> I mean, you know, I know I showed Danny that footage and I asked him, of course, first, if he wanted to see it, you know, um, he was hesitant, but he, he agreed to it. I didn't push him into it or anything like that. I would never do that. I feel like the longest two hours in my life. It still feel terrible. Like every time I think about it, that's like the most difficult decision you have ever made. To be honest with you, Danny was somebody that like he wasn't sure he wanted to be interviewed at first. You know, it's for him. It's very traumatizing, of course, to talk about this. Uh, very different from Karen. You know, he agreed in the sense of like his story is important and the, and the role that he played in capturing these guys is really important in the sense that he's a really everyday American hero, you know, and he's Chinese. And he's a Chinese immigrant, you know, and this largely is a story of immigration, you know, gone right and gone wrong, you could say. But to me, when he when he watched that, you know, and he, he was he didn't say anything. The only thing he said was that, like, I, you know, I can hear the tremble in my voice, you know. And I think for him, when he sees that, it, like it, it must put him directly back into that that moment. It's something that he'll never live without. So yeah, I mean, it was just a very simple, quiet moment. But I think for him, you know, he agreed to go back to that headspace um, for us. So that you know, watching it puts him back into that like very very vulnerable moment that he was willing to share with us. While it's thrilling to see stories where the bad guys get taken down, some of the most compelling stories are about when the system doesn't work. That's the case in the Netflix documentary film Victim Suspect. This was a layered story as the documentarians follow the work of an investigative journalist looking into the problem with sexual assault survivors being charged with filing false reports. Only the evidence seems to point to the assaults being real and the victims coast into false recantations by police who are suspicious of their claims. The film reveals a nationwide pattern of justice denied and turned on its head when crime victims are publicly humiliated and even imprisoned. 
When we covered Victim Suspect in May, I talked to Ray DeLeon, the journalist who pursued the case for the Center for Investigative Reporting. I also talked with Nancy Schwartzman, the filmmaker who followed Ray as she searched for sources and published her findings. Talking about this story-within-a-story format made for a great conversation. It meant that both Ray and Nancy were looking at the same evidence, but with slightly different perspectives. The most powerful elements of Victim Suspect were the police videos in which detectives use the same interrogation techniques on rape victims as they use on criminal suspects. The viewers are able to watch for themselves as investigators latch on to small omissions or inconsistencies and then lay a trap for the victim to fall into. I mean, Nancy, some of these interviews, I I was watching the interview with Emma and Detective Ackridge. I mean, it's obviously I have some confirmation bias having watched a documentary, but it seems like the confirmation bias for him is already there, that he walks into the room with the decision made. I'm going to tell you from, from the investigation, you're not being honest with me, okay? Well, what I just told you? Yes. I do not believe you. I do not believe you at all. And I think you're one of those people that's taken away from my true victims. I, I don't know if that's what you feel like as the filmmaker when you're watching these police tapes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was so layered, but it was all layered because he'd already spoken with her once before, right? So he's calling her back in. So it's never good when they're calling you back in. And so it's all from the top of, we listened to your report, we saw what you said and there are inconsistencies. I mean, that's how he starts it, is with this idea of inconsistencies and then it just totally unravels. Absolutely, you're just watching, he's trying any tactic he can, right? There's this idea, oh, you were drinking. Like it felt really important to me to include that little segment about how law enforcement will take something that's just not a, not connected to the rape, that this is an underage girl who had a couple glasses of beer and watching how they both shrink when they have to say, yes, I had a drink or trying to remember how much is also a tactic to put them sort of on their back foot And Carl Hirschman also backs it up by saying, oh, you just say, oh, you were underage drinking. And that's already enough to indicate to a young person that they might get in trouble or that Mm -hmm. they've already done something wrong. So certainly watching that tape um, of the Emma interview, uh, you could see all the ways he was just sort of tearing tearing down her story and tearing down, did she fight back hard enough? Like all, all of that sort of commentary. That like drinking and all these other things that come with, you know, certain kinds of assaults, it's, it's all a part of why reporting something like this is so complicated because you're coming with a full life behind you. And sometimes you're not sure like, oh God, if I, if I say that, does that mean I have to tell my mom that? And then will my mom end up reading the report and what are my friends and family going to find out? So a lot of times I think people come to the police and they're just feeling like they can't tell the full and complete story. Um, which is very understandable. And yeah, drinking and, you know, certain kinds of drug use come come into that. And it just, it all plays into how, you know, police might perceive someone as being deceptive, but they're actually just like really trying to protect themselves. That's right. And speaking of deception, of course, it's legal for police to use deceptive tactics. And you did get one cop from a high profile case to talk to. We talked about him earlier, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Detective Cotto. He got Nikki Yovino to recant her rape story and then arrested her for it. 
he seemed very proud of being able um, to get the information he wanted by using what he called a ruse. I mean, he's talking about the read technique here, but he calls it a ruse. I am. I'm breaking down psychological barriers to the point where, you know, and you can use ruse, a ruse. You know, I give what you is that? a ruse is a tool that allows the aids law enforcement to get to the truth. So it's actually not being truthful to them. Oh, it's saying like a, what? Saying a lie. Getting him to sit with you and reveal that, talking to him face to face about that, Ray, what was that like? Fascinating. I learned so much from him. And like, I, I'm really grateful he talked to us. I am really grateful he talked to us. Um, you know, he told me where he learned his training. I followed up and I got the DVD and I watched not all of it because it was really long, but some of it. I read the book that comes with it. And um, yeah, I was like, okay, this is fascinating. He learned this and I don't know how many others did, but uh, certainly others did. And, you know, he always, his thing is like, I'm going to get to the truth. I'm going to get to the truth. But based on the training that I watched and the book that I read from his trainer, it's really all about getting to the confession. Right. And that was so fascinating because he, he, he gets Nikki to a place where she, reverse sort of reverses the story but you know when you listen to it versus what you read in his report it is not the same the question of whether or not to believe an assault victim played out not only in criminal court a civil defamation trial provided the most thought-provoking discussion on justice in society it began with a controversial op-ed and ended with a social media swarm filled with hot takes on credibility and domestic violence the Netflix documentary series Depp v. Heard interspersed courtroom footage from the defamation case bought by actor Johnny Depp against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. While not a criminal case, the alleged libel pivoted on a statement Heard made in the Washington Post about being the victim of domestic violence. If Depp could convince a jury he never abused her, he could win his claim. But the Pirates of the Caribbean star played not only to the jurors, but also to the court of public opinion. YouTube and TikTok influencers live stream the proceedings and express doubt and outright hostility about Heard's testimony. Long before the jury spoke, the verdict on social media was clear. In August, I talked with Depp v. Heard director Emma Cooper about how the defamation case became a referendum on who gets to call themselves a victim. What I did not want to get into was he said, she said, from our point of view, right. I do not have an opinion. It is my job to not have an opinion. But my job and my interest lay in the fact that it was so polarizing and that it became that and everybody picked a side. And then right. it became about something very different than, as you say, the reason that it came about. Well, you know, one way to look at this is that truth is a defense against libel and you can't legally be defamed if the statement is true. So the trial became about Amber's truthfulness versus Johnny's character. And to prove either of those things, it can become unseemly and in this case, very ugly. Right. Yeah. 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 There were there were moments in that trial on both sides which were deeply troubling, deeply upsetting, and they were laid out very private moments, very sad moments, um, no matter what you think about either person, you know, on both sides, it was not something that you would want people to see. And that was very sad, I think. Nothing happened this morning, you know that? 
All I did was say sorry. Did something happen to you this morning? I don't think so. And, you know, it was really important to me in the first episode that we really built up and showed their love story because it was always quite bizarre and sad and poignant to me that these two people at one point had been deeply in love. It had been what an amazing romantic Hollywood love story. And, and it came down to this sad argument and fight in a courtroom in Virginia with very bad lighting. And, you know, you're not used to seeing these people with very bad lighting looking like the rest of us. And I wanted to remind people that this started for these two people in a very, in a very pure way. I fell head over heels in love with this man. She seemed to be the perfect partner, literate, sweet, funny. She was, uh, she was wonderful. They loved each other at one point, and then this is how it ended up. And it's incredibly sad for for anybody, you know, would would admit that I think and see that. I think it's very interesting to note that that is the one element of their testimony that lines up completely. When you sort of juxtapose his description of the beginning of the relationship and her description of the beginning of the relationship, it is completely aligned, no disagreement. It's when things start to turn that they begin to disagree. And I found that extremely interesting and very, very tragic. Yes. Yeah. And and, and also, I wanted to just you know, remind people that both of them are human beings and that we can relate to them. You know, we've all fallen in love. We've all been in love and we've all been in love and it has, you know, gone wrong. Um, And I just wanted people to remember that and also establish them through that as they are both human beings. Mm. And I think sometimes on both sides, people forget that the other person is a human being. Well, I think the public certainly forgot in in many instances that we're talking about human beings here. I mean, there's this horrible moment where Amber describes a sexual assault on camera. And I think that we have to remember she's on live television describing this moment. And that was a significant moment, like legally, there's a precedent there, right? Absolutely. The fact that she was in vision... And the testimony was live and televised. It was a very, very unusual and almost unprecedented testimony that happened. Hmm. So in the opinion of a lot of people, um, Amber Heard did not, quote, perform well on the stand, which hurt her with the jury. Sitting here today. It's so awkward. You have not donated the $7 million. Donated. Not pledged. Donated. The $7 million divorce settlement to charity. I use pledge and donation synonymous with one another. They but I the don't. Miss Heard, I don't use it synonymously. That's how donations are paid. Miss Heard, respectfully. It strikes me that in today's environment, and I don't think this is necessarily just today, I think it's through history, for women especially, it's more important to be likable in many cases in order to be believed, right? Both of them had a strategy. You know, both of them had legal teams who decided to go one way and another way and delivery uh, was part of that. You know, it being on TV was part of that. And I think that, you know, I don't know because I never spoke to the people who advised Amber, but it was clear that people responded better to Johnny's testimony than they did to Amber. And in particular, which we show in one of the episodes, the fact that she 
you know, whoever advised her was advising her to speak directly to the jury then seemed quite strange when you're watching it on the live feed. And I'm not certain that 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 was an element that worked for her. I thought it was interesting. And this is just my observation that, you know, people online kept talking about how she was an actress. She's an actress. She's I'm like, he's a very experienced actor and he has a different accent than he used to have. So <laughs> why are we only talking about her performance and not his performance when he literally is embodying the character of Jack Sparrow now? Yeah, I, I kept on saying it's very rare for a documentary filmmaker to have one of the best actors of their generation to be my main character, one of my main characters. It's extraordinary. You know, he is a incredibly amazing actor and you know they both are but you know he comes with a lot of history with that so johnny depp claimed to be a victim to you know he had his own photographs his own audio tapes and amber admits to uh the behavior in many instances so does this speak to the nuance of the cycle of violence or does this speak to some kind of victimhood that we just need to better understand I mean, again, I'm not there to look at that detail of the trial. I was to look at the fact that they were both claiming, you know, very real, very credible uh, violent instances and how that was taken by other people and how the moment that you thought the DV survivors would side with a woman, they sided with a man. And it was just a really amazing moment in time where the how people reacted to the testimony on both sides it just went a very different way like all the time you just couldn't predict how the majority where the line would fall on on any of these instances most dramatic locations are not the courthouses or police interrogation rooms. They're the nation's hospitals. New York's EMTs, trauma doctors, and surgical specialists must make life-saving decisions every day. But dealing with the effects of care delayed by the pandemic and struggling with personal and professional burnout, doctors and nurses realize some public health issues can't be treated with medicine or stitches. The Netflix documentary series Emergency NYC brought viewers into Lenox Hill Hospital and the lives of those who provide all levels of care, from the helicopter flight nurses who transport the patients to the world-class surgeons performing miracles in the OR. And we followed the journey of many patients, such as a victim of gun violence, an opera singer with a brain tumor, and a cop who secretly donated his kidney to his ex-partner. In April, I spoke with directors Adi Barash and Ruth Schatz about the most dramatic twists in the series. While skiing in Colorado, Dr. David Langer crashed and suffered a spinal injury. It left all of us wondering, even if Dr. Langer could walk again, would he regain the fine motor skills needed to be a neurosurgeon? He's flown back to New York and Lenox Hill, and we know it could be, you know, more than career ending for him. And you developed this intimate relationship with him. What was his reaction when you're there, you know, with him at his bedside? Well, we actually got a phone call from his wife and he's been asking us to be present and film him. You feel this? It's equal yeah. on both sides? Yeah. hundred percent equal. Yeah. That's equal. Yeah, this is a seizure right there. In here? Uh, uh, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. 
I'm sorry. The pain really is prohibitive, and so yeah. until the pain starts dying down, I'm still a little bit anxious. Um, he it was important for him to show that you know, even though it's super, it's it's super brave on his side to show his vulnerability in that sense because he has patients, and patients always want to show their see their doctor strong, right? Um, and in control, and he he thought it would be so important as as we, but obviously it was his decision and his conviction to show um, his vulnerability and also his braveness to being so exposed um, and show himself as a patient. So it can there's there are not gods and it, it can happen to them as well. I thought it was really interesting, Addie, that uh, Dr. Bukfar seemed to have a kind of a different point of view initially, that he didn't think that Dr. Langer should be there, that it would maybe diminish his leadership among his team for him to see him vulnerable. As leaders, nobody wants to see us in a vulnerable position. So can you unsee that? You know, which a lot of our staff will have to unsee this. I, I just thought that was a very interesting moment to ca- that you were able to capture there. Yeah, very interesting. These guys, these two, you know, they're 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 the best, really, because they, you know, they hang their emotions out in the open, and they talk about it, and they have such a great relationship uh, between them. And obviously, John was thinking, you know, possibly to not do it at Lenox Hill, which is, you know, most I would say that most of the doctors probably would take th- take that advice, but David, as a leader. You know, this is a time where you you built this department, you trust all the people. Is there a way where you go someplace else? If I don't believe in in them, you know, why should somebody else? And I think for him, he took that leap. I mean, it wasn't a leap of faith. He has faith, obviously, in his team, but it was teaching what uh, preaching what you're che- teaching or teaching what you're preaching, just to be on top of that and to be committed to it. And I think that was a brave, brave decision by his part. And John eventually, you know, he played, he understood him. And I think it made made them stronger towards the hospital and staff and to their relationship and to um, David's conviction, you know, that things like that are possible, you know, and doctors can be treated in their own place. Yeah. And of course, he said he felt like he was a better surgeon when he returned and, and he seemed to be have a different affect, at least to the viewer. Did you experience that with him as well? Yeah, definitely. He was he has a big mirror by himself, you know, through the his journey. And I think this changed him in, in many ways and made him a different person. Um, it made him re- reflect you know, on, on the things that are important in life. It made him a bit more calmer, you know, in his own domain. Obviously, you know, when you're, when you reach that point where a few millimeters to one side or the other, he could, you know, be in a completely different situation, it changes your life and you could take it, you know, and um, do something with it like he did. And I think it's valuable as you go on with the episodes to see, you know, he's, his reconnection to his world and to the patients. Um, and it's just beautiful. There was this very tense moment, though. His first surgery back was really complicated. I know all of his surgeries are really complicated, obviously. But his first one back, there was a lot of talk about how complicated it was. And then there was a complication during the surgery. She's seizing. Are you giving her anything? Can you call Jane? 
Did she get peppers? Give her another 500, please. And then we'll let, just, can we get a neurology consult, please? Did you feel in that moment like his future was really tied to this patient? Because as a viewer, you know, I was really on the edge of my seat about the outcome of this surgery. It was really, really nerve wracking and, and really tense for me as a viewer. Yeah, it was definitely also nerve wracking for us as filmmakers. And, you know, as, as, you know, it was one of those moments in documentary where you get a gift, right? You don't know what you're filming. You don't know what you're going to get. And here it is, the most dramatic comeback you can imagine. And ultimately, this woman is cured and she can see. And she's in a much better place than she even was before um, this case. So I think... You know, for us, it's been, it's been a process, you know, having him coming back, all the anxiety of how it's going to work and what's going to happen and if he's going to make it and how can he even operate. And then he, he operates in such a grace, grace and such a meticulous way, even more than before and saving this woman's life. It was just beyond. So there is a postscript to that story, as you said, that patient does wake up and she's better off than she was before she can see. And then she gives this heartfelt thank you on behalf. Really, it feels like of all of us to all the doctors for doing what they do in this climate. God has blessed you to save people's lives. And every day you wake up, you should always feel that you've done your parts of society. We try hard here. Yes, you do. See, we can't give up on hope. The world is still good. That's it for this week's episode. Join me again next week when we talk about my favorite Netflix unscripted and documentary films and series on sports and culture. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 